Hey everyone, so the other day I'm speaking to a friend of mine who is the same age as me and he moved to Minneapolis in Minnesota just after high school, which was an undefined number of years ago. Alright, so if you don't know where Minnesota is, it's kind of in the central part of the USA, right at the top by the Canadian border. So it's landlocked, it's super cold, uh, he's subsequently got married, he's got a kid, and a number of years ago we're chatting and he says, listen, I want to take my family to the beach because my wife who grew up in Minnesota, she has never seen the ocean. Now that absolutely boggled my mind because not only do we try and get to the ocean as often as we can, but I spent seven years of my life growing up at the ocean and I can't imagine what it's like to never see and experience the ocean. Now, I'm not judging, so let's bring it back home. Imagine here you are in the south of Johannesburg and all you know when it comes to water bodies, you're growing up here and all you know is your bathtub, maybe your swimming pool, and the biggest water body you know is the dam in Ritvlei. But then a couple of years later, someone invites you to go to picnic at Emerentia Dam, and so you arrive at Emerentia and you're like, what? I had no idea that water could get this big and vast, and everyone's kind of just looking at you strange. A few years later, someone invites you to go to the Vol Dam, and as you arrive, you just stand at the edge of the Vol Dam because you have never comprehended what it means to have a water body this size. And then eventually you become a teenager and, and somebody takes you in the car all the way to the ocean and as you get to the sea, your mind just cannot compute what you're looking at anymore because you just cannot even see land on the other side. And then someone points out, listen, the horizon is only about five kilometers away. Australia is about 10,000 kilometers away. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, we're coming to our final sermon in our series called His Last Words, where Jesus in John 17 is praying his high priestly prayer. It's his last prayer for us. All right. He is about to be arrested. He's about to be crucified. And so there is an importance. There is a weightiness to the content of his prayers. And we are getting to the end of the prayer. And here's what I think Jesus is praying for. Jesus never wants us to be satisfied with what we've got. Not because Jesus doesn't satisfy, but because he is the only one that truly satisfies. There is more. Jesus never wants us to stagnate. He always wants us to grow and mature and go into the more that he has for us. So how do we see that? Well, let's go to John chapter 17 and we're going to be looking from verse 24 onwards. So let's read verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. And so here's the first question I want to ask you. Do you want to be with Jesus? Now, don't answer the question the way you think I want you to answer it. I want you to look into your heart and I want you to truly answer this question. Above all things, do you want to be 
with Jesus. Now, if you've journeyed with us, you would know that earlier on in the prayer, Jesus says that I want to give them eternal life. And what is eternal life? It is knowing the Father. It is knowing the Son in an intimate relationship of love that we have with them. And here he is saying the same thing. I want them to be with me. The question is, do you want to be with him? I heard one pastor put it this way. He said, imagine heaven was everything you ever wanted. Everything you ever wanted. Except for Jesus. Would you still want heaven? You see, I think what this is highlighting is for some of us, we say we want Jesus, but what we really want is his stuff. What we really want is the genie in the bottle who can give me the things that I want. And I am less interested in wanting Jesus. And so the question is, do you want to be with Jesus or do you only want his stuff? Now, some of you are going to have to use your imagination here a little bit. But imagine people only ever wanted you for your stuff. The things you could do for them or the things you could give them or your possessions or your technology. But they're not interested in you. From time to time, uh, Bianca and I love to show our kids some of the kids' movies we used to enjoy when we were younger. So the other day, we were watching Richie Rich with Macaulay Culkin. And um, Richie Rich, obviously, uber rich kids, richest kid in the world. And there's a scene where his family has bought this factory and they're kidding it out and they're launching this new business and the father can't go. So Richie Rich arrives in this chopper. They literally roll out a red carpet. There's all this press and all this attention. And he's got to stand there and kind of represent his family to the public. And he looks over all these people that are adoring him and looking at him. And he sees a number of kids, probably kind of lower middle class kids, and they're playing baseball. And at that point, Richie Rich wants nothing more than to play baseball with those kids. So once he's done, he's done the formalities, he goes and tries to join them. And you can see they're like, what's up with this rich kid? And it doesn't really go down too well. Short while later in the movie, Richie Rich organizes that these Kids get picked up in limos and fancy cars and they get brought to his home and then they start to have the day of their lives. All right, they start to realize that Richie Rich has his own McDonald's in his house. He's got those, all this incredible technology. These awesome outdoor go-karts and whatever. They've got this kind of human launching catapult type thing. But what starts to emerge quite quickly is that they love Richie Rich's stuff but they don't really like him. Now, of course, it's a movie. Everything pans out in the end. Everyone's a friend and everyone works together to make the big thing happen. All right. But now going back to your question, do you want to be with Jesus in the same way that he wants to be with you? Or do you simply want him for what he can give you and for what he can do for you? Because Jesus makes it very clear in these verses. I know some people, they kind of scoff at this part of Christianity and they call it a little bit sentimental. But Jesus has made it crystal clear that he wants you to be with him and to see him, to know him and to see and experience his glory. Now, sometimes this is hard to understand because 
we're so used to people rejecting us. So people reject me because I'm not fast enough or I'm not clever enough or I'm not intellectual enough or I'm not rich enough or I'm not sporty enough. And so we get used to interpreting other people's motivations through the lens of our rejection. Or when it comes to God, maybe we interpret something like this through the lens of our shame, through the lens of our inadequacy, through the lens of our guilt. We look around us and we say, Lord, there are much more intelligent people than me. There are more beautiful people than me. There are more equipped people than me. There are more spiritual and righteous people than me. I'm sure if we get to heaven, I will be there, but you're going to spend all your time with everybody else. And so Jesus says, but... Listen, the reason I came into this world is number one, to show you how much I want you to be with me. And number two, so that I can deal with the things that you're incapable of dealing with, the things that separate you from me. So I'm going to deal with that so that you can be with me. All right. That's what Jesus wants. And so do you want to be with him? Now, I think there are a number of things that get in the way of us answering answering that question in the affirmative. I think sometimes what happens is we conflate certain religious practices with Jesus. So on one hand, and this is something I struggled with in my early 20s, I conflated a certain style, a certain way of doing worship with Jesus himself. And in fact, I made an idol out of this kind of worship. And so when I said I loved Jesus, what I actually loved was the experience of worship as opposed to Jesus himself. And I know that's so subtle, but it's something that the Lord had to deal with me. Or because we've conflated certain church or certain Christian practices with Jesus, we get turned off by certain things. And so therefore we think we're turned off by Jesus when in fact we're actually turned off by sometimes very human experiences, right? And then there are also legitimately other things in our lives that we do love more than Jesus. We come to these things before we come to him. We think we enjoy these things more than Jesus or what these things can give us or what these things can do for us more than Jesus. Based on our experience, we say to ourselves, well, money, sex, power, new things, shiny things, attention, affirmation. These things make me feel a lot better than my experience of Jesus has been. And therefore, I love these things more than Jesus. The Bible would call that idolatry. And I understand how sometimes from our perspective, it seems to be that way. But from Jesus' perspective, he's saying, you've got no idea of how much love I have for you. you got no idea of how much you're missing out on. I'm offering you the ocean and you're settling for a little farm dam, right? This is how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
when we're trying to go to our idols for our joy and our pleasure, we are playing with mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what it is we haven't experienced yet. And so this starts to come out even more strongly in this prayer. So let's read verse 25 where Jesus prays, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that. I know you and they know that you have sent me. Verse 26. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And end that I myself may be in them. So I just want to talk about this verse for a second. And specifically, I want to talk about when Jesus says, I have made you known to them and I will continue to make you known. You see, we're reading about events that happened roughly 2000 years ago. And so what happened then was. Jesus came into this world and as he spent time with his disciples, as they start to see him and know him, Jesus says, well, if you've seen me, you have seen the father. And in many ways, as he says so clearly here, he's saying, I am the revelation of my father, meaning as you see me and know me, I am in fact revealing my father to you. So here we are, 2,000 years later, reading about this historic event. Now, back to these guys. Not only was this a once-off event where Jesus says, I have made you, uh, my Father, known to you, but I will continue to reveal him to you in the same way to us. As Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples, we've got this historical record of this event in the past But that same Jesus is present to us. And so what we see in Jesus, we see in the Father, not only back then, past tense, but in Him now. And so there is a sense in which Jesus can say to you and to me, I have made the Father known to you and I will continue to make him known to you. In other words, don't settle for the farm dam. Don't settle for the next size. Don't even settle for the ocean. There is the universe waiting for you. I want to continue revealing my father to you. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is going to give us a dream or a vision. We're going to go into a cave or a mountaintop and we're going to come up with these strange, fanciful new ideas about who the father is. No, Jesus has given us the identity of the Father, but what He is wanting to do in our lives is grow the degree to which we know the Father. Just like getting to know your husband or your wife or your children or your friends is a process of revelation. So Jesus wants to continue to reveal the infinite Father to us. Now, the second part of this verse says, and I want to do this, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. The love the Father has for Jesus may be in us, and that I myself may be in them. So let me ask you a question. How much of the Father's love 
is in Jesus. It reminds me of a meme. Remember all those Chuck Norris memes? There was a meme that said, how many push-ups can Chuck Norris do? And the answer is, all of them. <laughs> all right, all of them. So how much, sorry about that. How much of the Father's love is in Jesus? All of it. Question number two. How much of the Father's love that was in Jesus is in you? Now, from the Father's perspective, He cannot love you more than He already loves you. All of His love is available to you. But from your perspective, how much of the infinite love of the Father are you aware of, has transformed you, have you accepted in your life? And the answer is that for most of us, we're playing with mud pies when God is offering us the ocean. This is why Paul prays, and uh, many of you will know that this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. This is what Paul prays. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. He doesn't say, I pray that you will become rooted and established in love. He says, I pray that you, who are already rooted and established in love, I pray that you may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp. God needs to empower us to even begin to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is not about data. This is about knowing the love of Jesus. So God needs to empower us to grasp and to know the infinite nature of his love so that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God, which is the second thing that Jesus prays for here in verse 26. And so let's ask the next, next question. Is Christ fully formed in you? Now, if we're going to answer that question with any humility, whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or five years or 55 years, whether you're struggling or, or whether you're immature or whether you honestly and humbly know that you've walked a road and you've grown in faith and you, you walk with God daily, if we're going to answer that question with any humility, we're going to say, there's not enough of Christ in me. Regardless of how much I've known and experienced Him, there is infinitely more, infinitely more. Paul refers to this in the book of Galatians 4 verses 19. He says, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is saying that this is a painful process and we're only at the beginning. We're only at the point of childbirth. We've got the entire being, the entire lifetime of this idea to grow and form in you. 
This is what Paul wants for his people. This is what Jesus is praying for us, that the Father's love and the person of Christ is formed in us. This is what he's praying for. And so I am concerned that if ever we stagnate in this, if ever we're like, I've got enough, I'm okay, that not only will we more than likely start going backwards, because as from our experience, we think we've experienced it all. From Jesus' experience, he's saying, you've got no idea how much more of my Father's love and how much more of me there is available to you. And so maybe, maybe the reason you think you're done, the reason you're on the way out, the reason you're stagnating, is maybe because you've had a cup of water and you thought that was all it was. You thought it was the ocean. All right. Maybe it's because you think you've tried Christ when all you've actually tried is some form of substitute for the real Christ or you've only had a foretaste of Christ and you've assumed that's all there is. And Jesus is saying there's more. There's more of his love and more of himself to be formed in us. By the way, we will never fully get there, this side of heaven. Even the Apostle Paul, he says, not that I've already achieved all of this, but yet I strive and strain forward for this. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, on this side of heaven, we only see in part, we know in part, but then, just as I am fully known now, I will fully know him. And so this is not something that can be fully achieved this side of heaven. However, it is something we can grow into and mature into. Now, in these verses is another reason why I think we need to continue growing into the love of God and into the reality of Christ in us. And we saw this earlier in verse 25, where Jesus prays, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, number of times in this prayer, he's already prayed, Lord, I pray that they may be one so that the world may know, so that the world may see. And so when he says the world doesn't know you, he's not saying, well, they don't know you, but here are people who do. So let's have our own private little party. No, he's already shown us that his heart is so that the world may see, so that the world may know. And so here's how this works. The world doesn't know the love of God. The world doesn't know the Father. And so Jesus comes into this world and he is the revelation of the Father and the Father's love to us. Jesus reveals that to us. And in relationship, he continues to reveal the Father to us. And as he does that, he continues to form more of the Father's love in our hearts, more of himself in our lives. And as he does that, we in turn, just like the moon reflects the sun, we in turn become the revelation of Jesus to the world. And as they see something different in us, we point them not to us, but to Jesus. And therefore Jesus becomes the revelation of the Father to them. 
And so we don't only grow in the Father's love and in Christ so that we can have a good spiritual time. No, we do it. This is what Jesus is praying. So that the world may know. So that the world may see. I want to share a thought that I had the other day. Just in my devotional time this last week, I've been working through 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I don't know how many times I've preached on this passage in church or referred to it or read it or used it at a wedding or just spoken about it whenever we've spoken about love. And so for that reason, it's kind of one of those passages that can really fall into sen- sentimentality and cliche. Nonetheless, I'm going through this passage and I get to the, the love is section. You know, love is patient, love is kind. We will read it in a second. And I thought to myself, as I was reading these words, what if I could read these words as if I'd never heard them before? Or what if someone who is not a follower of Christ not a believer, someone who has never heard of Jesus, who has never heard of Christianity, who has never heard of 1 Corinthians 13. Imagine somehow they picked up a piece of paper with these words on them. What would it be like to read these words? So for you out there, try and hear these words in a fresh way. Imagine you've never heard love described in this way. Listen to these words. Love is patience. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. And it always perseveres. Now, here's the thought that came to me as I try to read these words in that way. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are many parts of the world that are increasingly saying, we think the world would be a better place with fewer Christians. Now, I'm not just talking about places where there's physical and violent persecution of Christians. I'm talking about even largely the West, which is a large part of our influence. And large portions of the West are starting to say, we believe that not only can we maybe coexist with Christians, but we're taking it further. We believe that Christianity is bad and that the world would be a better place without Christians. And this is something that maybe has some founded reasons. There is hypocrisy in the church. We've got a very checkered history that we need to be honest about. But sometimes it is unfounded. Regardless, I was looking at these words and I was saying, if someone who's never heard about Christianity or Jesus picked up these words, I guarantee you a year's salary that they would say, we need more of this. Yeah, we definitely definitely need people and families and institutions and businesses and communities that show more patience and kindness, that are not as self-centered, that are not rude, that, that are not easily angered, they're not holding wrongs against me, that they're always protecting one another, always trusting, always hoping, always persevering. So here's the real challenge. We want fewer Christians, but we want this. And the greatest challenge of all of that is 
there is not a single human being, let alone a community, that has ever perfectly embodied this kind of love. Well, let me restate that. Apart from Jesus, there is not a single community, or not a single person, who has perfectly embodied this kind of love. So here's the challenge. Can this kind of love increasingly be said of Stephen? Stephen is patient. Stephen is kind. Stephen does not envy. Stephen is not easily angered. Stephen doesn't delight in evil. He rejoices with the truth. Stephen always protects and always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres. How I want you to see that this is the vision that Jesus has for us. He wants the world to know that we are disciples by the love that we have and the love that we have on display. He wants himself to be formed in us. Not so that we're self-righteous bigots, but so that we display this kind of love that the world truly wants and needs. However imperfectly, I am going to live this out. And so we're going to start moving to a time of communion. And as we transition from speaking about Jesus' prayer to the cross to communion, one of the verses I was thinking about is a verse that a number of decades ago was probably um, one of the most, if not the most quoted and well-known verses in Scripture. Probably not as true today, but it's John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, For God so loved the world. What is God's primary, primary posture towards the world? Yes, including our sinful and fallen condition. What is God's primary heart towards us? For God so loved the world that he did something about it. He gave. What did he give? Spare change? No, he gave us himself. Mysteriously, in the form of Jesus Christ, God came down. And did he just shower us with love and blessings in many ways? Yes. But when the Bible says that God gave us his son, it means he was willing to sacrifice the life of his son for us, which again mysteriously means that God was willing to sacrifice himself in human form for us. You don't get a greater price than that. For God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him Whoever trusts Him, whoever loves Him, whoever knows Him, will not perish and go the way of sin and, and fallenness and the consequences thereof. But would experience eternal life. And what is eternal life according to Jesus in John 17? Is us knowing Him both for today and forever. This is what Jesus wants for us. And so I think it is so appropriate that we end off this prayer and our study of this prayer with communion. Where did we start at the beginning of this series? We saw that Jesus, first and foremost, was praying about the glory of God. And we also saw that the glory of God is not only about His majesty and His magnificence, 
But strangely, the glory of God is seen in the cross. And so by participating in communion, we are beholding the glory of God in Jesus and in the cross. And then Jesus talks about just as he enjoys unity with the Godhead. When we look at the cross, we see the plan of salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together for our redemption. And we see this in the cross. We see this in the resurrection. And so we see the unity of God working here as we take communion. And then we see Jesus praying that just as the Father is in Him and He's in the Father, He wants to be in us. So we enjoy unity with Him. And so as we take communion, we are expressing and celebrating our unity with Jesus. In His death and that He has died our sins but also our unity with him in his life and his resurrection. And then Jesus prays for our unity, that we may be one as they are one. So as we take communion, we are mindful that while I may be alone in my home and that I don't see my Christian brothers and sisters, there is a unity that God gives that transcends brick and mortar and kilometers. And that we are celebrating our unity in Christ together. Not only as a local church, but Jesus is also concerned about the whole body of believers. And yes, different churches do this in different ways and they may emphasize different things. But at the heart of it, we are all celebrating our unity in Christ. Our unity in His body and our unity in experiencing His blood shed for us paying for our sins to give us life. And today we also consider that as we experience and express our unity together in communion, we also do this so that the world may see. Just as much as I ingest bread and I ingest juice or wine, so Jesus wants to be formed in me in increasing measures to the degree that I have never fully imagined. And just as I ingest these practical things, so Jesus wants His love to be formed in me. And so communion is the perfect way for us to celebrate all that Jesus has been praying for in this message. So as we take the bread, symbolizing Christ's body broken for us, we think of a God motivated by love and a God who in love dealt with all that prevents me from knowing him fully. And as I eat this, I encourage you to pray, God, I want to know you more. I want more of your love, more of your presence in my life. Thank you for the cross that made this possible. Let's eat together. And then as we drink of the cup together, the Bible says the life is in the blood. And Jesus' blood was shed for us so that we may have life. As his blood washes over us, it washes our sins away. 
and we are covered with His righteousness, but also that we may know Him. And so let's drink together. Jesus, you prayed that you have made the Father known to us. And so I pray that as we've come before your words, we've also come before your presence. The same Jesus who was physically available to these disciples is spiritually and tangibly available to us. That the Father has been revealed to us. And Jesus, you prayed that you would continue to reveal the Father to us. So I pray for everyone listening to this. That they would not settle for mud pies. That they would not settle for the idea that their experience thus far is the sum total of it. But is either a poor substitute for you, Jesus. Or at best a pointer towards the more that you have for us. So Jesus, by your Spirit, would you increase our knowledge of you? Would you give us this power, as Paul prays, together with all the saints, to know this love, to know this love, nurture this love within us, Jesus, as you nurture yourself within us. And Lord, so that the world may see, so that the world may know. We need this. The world needs this. So God, I ask that you do this. I pray this in your name. Amen.